0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Quantum Catechesis. I'm Father Joe Krupp, and you are not. And today, 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 we have, I think, a pretty cool show. I told Kerry, I've been obsessing about this topic. uh, And uh, I'm excited to walk us through this. Uh, I think it'll be really important. We're gonna look at Ukraine and Russia. How did we get here? Where did this all come from? And why am I so pretty? That's, part of it. Uh, that's a huge part of it. Everyone's fighting over me. I don't know if you know. They refer to me as having the face that launched a thousand ships. Do you know about that, Care? No. There's a uh, Helen of Troy. Yes. Uh, is referred to as having the face that launched a thousand ships. Uh, ships, right? The uh, Trojans and the um, and the uh, Agamemnon, uh, the Greeks. Uh, That war was supposedly over Helen of Troy, who was married to the Spartan king and kind of slipped off with the Prince of Troy. Uh, Oops. So anyway, what do we do? Oh, first, pardon? But how does it come that she launched the face? Oh, because the Greeks sent the world at Troy to go get her. Yeah, and uh, instead they just killed everybody. And then a guy, I think I can even remember this A guy named Aeneas Survived the slaughter in Troy Escaped with a group of people And then like his great To the 20th power grandsons Were Romulus and Remus The founders of Rome I think I'm saying this right I don't know Everybody involved is dead So I know they don't care But uh, I actually have to get right after this today Because we got a ton And my goal is to try to do this in two days And you know me That's gonna be hard because we're gonna, things I love, right? Jesus, history, baseball, and then I guess my family. Dad's laughing. He's like, you forgot hot dogs. So uh, before I do, though, uh, I'm going to ask us all to pray for Chris and Kate and their baby in the womb, uh, Daniel Joseph. They could really use our prayers uh, for little Daniel Joseph. Um, Daniel means God is my judge. Did you know that in Hebrew? And Joseph means God has added. See? Okay. So uh, Chris and Kate, we love you. And we're praying that through the intercession of St. Gerard, the patron saint of expectant mothers, that God will wrap his hands around Daniel Joseph and protect him in the womb and heal him and give us the gift of his life. Amen. Okay, on Friday's show, after Friday show, I guess I should say. So Friday's show will be normal, as normal as anything with me is. But then at 12 noon, Eastern time, when the show ends, it's not really going to end. It's sort of like the crucifixion. Uh, instead, at 12 noon, I will lead anyone who wishes, hang around, and we will pray the prayer of consecration of Russia, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Uh, What is this about? Pope Francis has uh, asked that every Catholic on Friday at noon pray the prayer, uh, consecrating Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Now, as a heads up, uh, the perpetually indignant uh, are already sabotaging the Pope's effort, saying he's not doing it right. Uh, for those uh, should I even say which news source I don't know like someone just sent me an article I'm going to say it, by LifeSite News which uh, is about as much about news as it might be about life Uh, and they are spreading something that I haven't seen anywhere. And I've read what the Pope wrote. Oh, he's not really doing this. Uh, He wants it as an act of consecration of all people of goodwill. Knock it off right? Get your attention some other way. We can all get on the same page and say it is objectively a good thing that we are praying a prayer of consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Don't listen to the people who try to pollute this, no matter how noble they sound. Some of them might be noble in their intentions, but a lot of them are reducing so much of this to witchcraft. You have to get the incantation right, please. God is not a computer. Um, So, but is my computer God? (laughs) Did that sound like, I was trying to sound like a pseudo-intellectual. Okay, so uh, what we're gonna do now is launch this uh, thinger on ukraine and russia but i want to walk you through some of my sources real quick right just because i think that's important uh some of it i have to tell you sometimes i've read something and i can't remember where and i try to google if i remember a sentence uh there's some i couldn't find but here's the ones i know i used uh and i don't know if i'm saying this cat's name right patrick Keiger, k-i-g-e-r uh he wrote an excellent article um on i think i got from him stalin's stuff in the ukraine uh and then another person whose name i'm not sure how to pronounce the do you see that sis do you see that uh, who knows but in 2015 he or she wrote an article that i apparently liked so much i kept it on my hard drive oh, wow. yeah i need therapy uh patrick wyman who is probably him or Duncan are my favorites, but Duncan didn't talk about this yet. And then Dan Carlin, uh, the historian from, uh, I forget the name of his stuff. Isn't this terrible? My brain. I'm so excited to dive in. I can't remember what those people wrote. Now in what is to me, one of the more exciting developments in all this, Dr. Aaron Walter. Okay, uh, This cat wrote me, I think yesterday. Um, and if I may, this is what he says, he's offering his first hand info from an American expat, and he used to be a Midwesterner, so he's our tribe. He's now living in Central Eastern Europe for the last 16 years. So he's been there a little bit. He's lived in Slovakia, visited Ukraine, and now he lives in Vilnius, Lithuania, which is where Marco Ramius was from in the book, The Hunt for Red October. Uh, Anyway, he teaches international relations at university, so basically he doesn't know anything. But he's offering to help, and I'm so geeked out. We're trying to figure out how to do it. I just sent the brother an email because we don't have the capability for he and I to be on Zoom together on this show. But if you send us $10 million, we can do it. I'm just kidding. We can do it for nine so uh we're gonna figure this out and i hope if he's listening or hearing today that uh brother doctor i hope you like any errors you note uh because i'm not well i don't know if i'm a historian i don't know i read obscene amounts and I, i just love this stuff that's the trouble here but anything I get wrong, doc, if you're watching, please note it so we can talk about it. And if there's anything you think, well, you got some, but not all, that doesn't hurt my pride. I want to know, right? I want to do a good job. So anyway, thank you to Dr. Aaron Walter or Dr. Aaron, as we're going to call you, a, a. Ron. So what we're going to start off with, please, uh, let me get a drink. Oh, yeah, I said it wrong, didn't I? Carrie, thank you. Okay, so I messed up talking about Friday, and it's Carrie's fault. Um, The show will start with the consecration prayer, and it's a longie. I don't mind telling you. Is this something where we can put the text up? Sure. I don't want you poor people to just have to hear me read a prayer. Uh, It's like, I mean, this is a Jesuit wrote it, guys. So there's probably words in there no one can pronounce. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm always up for a Jesuit joke. Uh, so nicely done, sis. So on Friday the show will start <clears throat> with the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and we will do it wrong on purpose just to freak people out. <clears throat> So, um, did I mention Dr. A. A. Aaron teaches international relations in Slovakia, Czechoslovakia? Seriously. The man's legit. Somebody said Faustina, St. Faustina is associated with Vilnius. Yeah, Uh, in fact, the better (coughs) there's two, what do you call those? Divine mercy images. And there's the one where Jesus looks kind of like a hipster, and he's doing this. And the Vilnius one, which is lovely. Can you tell which one we want? So, first, we're going to look at why is Ukraine in control of Ukraine so important to Russia? And as far as I can tell, there's probably a lot, but I'm just going to list you some, and then I'm going to walk us through the history. So, first is history, right? Ukraine is home to an estimated 7.5 million ethnic Russians— who mostly live in the eastern part of Ukraine and the southern part of Crimea, Crimea, Crimean Peninsula, Crimea, okay? And historically, like the whole thing that made World War I kinda happen in a weird way is Russia had an understanding of herself as quote, protector of the Slavs, right? Like Dan Carlin did a whole thing on this about one of the key reasons World War I happened the way it did was because Russia felt a moral obligation to come to the rescue of the Slavs. It's really fascinating stuff. But anyway, uh, so history, Uh, also finance. Ukraine is one of Russia's biggest markets for their natural gas export and a pretty crucial transit route to the rest of Europe. When Russia wants to get goods to Europe, she needs Ukraine, at least in her mind. Third, politics. Which, surprise, because usually politics help everyone. (laughs) This is a quote from Daniel Dresner, who's an international politics professor at Tufts. This blows me away. Ready? Russia without Ukraine is a country. Russia with Ukraine is an empire. That's very much a Russian way of the the way they see it. Uh, Another reason. That control of Ukraine is so important to Russia is military. Russia doesn't have natural borders like rivers or mountains on its western frontier, so they've really kind of seen that whole area on their western frontier as theirs to manipulate and control, like a buffer between them and Europe. And that's pretty important, okay? My brother Paul just said, Joe you pronounced it wrong, why don't you cry me a river? That's Paul. That's your son. You made him. Mm-hmm. Sir, I salute you. Uh, and then this is a quote from the Kremlin advisor, Sergey Markov. Uh, and, and he uses a word that I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce. Galicians, maybe? And Dr. A. Aron, maybe you can help me with this. But it's a term I found out the Russians use for ukrainian speaking people in the ukraine right Galicians, galakians i don't know quote everyone knows that ukrainians are russians except for the Galicians. that's an advisor to the president of russia yeah they're russians and everybody knows it except those people Hey, so Russia's a little saucy about this, as you can tell from their willingness to, I don't know, murder tens of thousands of people. Uh, how did this all start? Well, like many crazy things in Europe, it started with the Vikings. Yeah? Um, that uh, in the 9th century, the Vikings from Scandinavia uh, poured down from the north and just began doing what they're great at, killing everybody and conquering. And they set up a dominion there, the Vikings did, from uh, the Baltic to the Black Sea. Okay. Now, two days ago, I wrote a buddy of mine a question just to get his help on this. And he said an interesting thing. He thinks it was Ivar the Boneless who was the Viking that came down from the north. I don't know. I poked around and I couldn't find it. But if you're not sure, Ivar the Boneless is... Um, Uh, what's-his-butt son, Uh, the first Viking to get over to England and go, we like it here, I think we'll take it. Uh, uh, Ragnar, uh, Ragnar Lothbrok, right? He had uh, four or five boys who just kind of went all over Europe and went, we really like it here, I think we'll stay. Ivar the Boneless was, I think, his youngest. Uh, And anyway, that's what my buddy said. He said, I think it was him. I don't know. I didn't see it anywhere. Uh, What I saw everywhere was Vikings, and specifically from Scandinavia. Uh, So they came in, killed everybody that they wanted to, uh, had a lot of babies, if you know what I'm saying, and they set up this dominion from the Baltic to the Black Sea, and they established it as a kingdom and called it Kivan Rus'. Okay, that's what it was called. And it lasted from the 9th century to the 13th century. And it lasted well. It thrived during that time. Now, where did those names come from? Rus is the Slavic word for the Vikings. And I think even specifically redheaded Vikings. But again, Dr. Aaron, you might be able to help me on this. Uh, Kiev was the name of the uh, thing, they the, the capital they established. So it was uh, Kivan Rus was the name of this empire kind of and again it stretched from sea to sea there Um, they converted to eastern orthodox christianity in 988 so they really weren't even there a hundred years the vikings weren't when they converted to christianity specifically what you and i call eastern orthodox to be clear at that point they just called it Christianity, right? The separation between East and West didn't happen to like 1054, uh, but at this point, it was definitely a cultural expression of Christianity, other than uh, not a different religion, okay? How we doing so far? We doing good? Okay, so uh, as a note, a French cleric, right, who popped in on the Kivan roofs to see what's it like here. When he went home, he described it as better than Paris. He was like, they're prosperous, they're civilized, they're in unity, they're strong. These are some, this is a beautiful place to be. So what the Vikings established flourished. Vikings were huge believers in trade. And they also brought about unity by killing everyone who disagreed with them. So anyway, this French priest or or bishop, I don't know, I just wrote cleric. Uh, So could have been a deacon. Yeah. He described it as a better place to live than France and that it was amazing. So everything's rocking and reeling and hanging from the ceiling until sometime in the 13th century when the Mongols arrived. So if you know anything about European history, here's a couple things to know. When you get your little DNA test and it shows you all these dots spread all over Europe, blame the Vikings. And when you see that one dot, way to the east, that's a Mongol. Yeah. Um, Seriously? I mean, it's crazy. Like every once in a while someone will show me their little DNA test and it's like Germany, Poland, Britain, Beijing. I'm like... That would be Genghis Khan. (laughs) Actually, it would be a guy named Subadai. But anyway, be this as it may, the Mongols arrived, and the Kivan Rus were the dominant political and military power at the time. And to give you a sense of the Mongols, it wasn't close. Uh, I think it was Patrick Wyman who said, whenever you think about the Mongolian invasions of Europe, think of it this way. A team from the majors just showed up at a high school baseball game to play. He said it was that much of a gap. The Europeans were not ready for the level of ferocity and skill that Mongolians brought to the equation. The only group that really had a shot at stopping them would have been Kievan Rus and they didn't last a week and to be clear and I, and I told you Carrie yesterday this is why we were doing two shows because I have to do this Yeah, this was a scouting party from Mongolia did you know that? this wasn't an army and the Europeans never figured that out till way later that what they were fighting wasn't an army the army was back uh, going after China this was about 30,000 dudes that went yeah we'll go scout and got home and went well, that was easy and it was so e- well, I mean y- you can't imagine nobody was ready for how dominant the vi- uh, the, the the Mongols were and uh, just as a side note they blasted through the Kievan Rus they blasted through everybody nobody even gave them a decent fight uh, there was never a battle I could find that the Mongolians fought where they weren't significantly outnumbered and they barely lost anybody, okay? But here's the key. Once they blasted through Kivan Rus and once they pushed east, there was no army left. They killed everyone. They depopulated parts of the Middle East on their way. When they, There was no army between them and the ocean. So do you know why they went home? They went home. Do you know why? The Khan died. They needed to go back for the funeral. I am not kidding. That saved Europe. Europe would have been under Mongolian domination for about 300 more years than it was. Except the uh, the Khan died. Huh? Better head home. We go to funerals. Uh, isn't that wild? Mm-hmm. And when they got home, like if you look at the secret life of... Genghis Khan, I think it is The Secret Life of the Mongols The Secret Life of the Mongols, which is the biography written during that time the autobiography when they talk about conquering I don't know, Europe took up about two pages and the whole two pages were that was easy, let's go back to China they give us a fight no kidding guys They burned through, and they destroyed, and they killed, and they literally piled bodies as high as they could and left the bodies there to rot. Uh, As a warning to anyone else, literally saying what? We'll be back, and when we come back, it's best you don't fight. Uh, Another uh, interesting thing about all this, well, no, let it go. Okay, so. After the month, what? What year? They want to know about what year Oh, you're talking the 14th century, the 1300s, I believe. Yes. Uh, let me double check. Okay. 13th century. Yep. 13th century. Did I say 14th? No. 13th century is when all this happened. The Mongols arrived and absolutely obliterated everybody. Um, and Kiev was, for all intents and purposes, gone. It literally gone, like the Mongol policy was. Kill everybody, leave, come back a week later just in case anyone was hiding. That's how thorough they were in these exterminations. Well, what was the effect of on Kievan Rus? Well, all that was left was this crappy, one of their tiniest trading ports in a city they named Moscow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? You see where all this is going? Mm-hmm. So you had Kivan Rus, then you had the Mongolians coming up and go, that's a nice empire you got there. Be ashamed if something happened. And when they finished killing everybody, the only thing left in that empire was their one of their smallest trading ports, posts, way up in the north that they named Moscow. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so after that mongolian devastation that territory and they didn't come back right that was the thing for a long time europeans kept like what are we gonna do they're coming back and there's nobody left they didn't come back they thought we can take out the europeans they didn't call them that but we can take out those people anytime let's finish china first and it's kind of what they did but the all these competing powers then in Europe that were left descended on what we call Ukraine and started divvying it up. They wanted the rich, fertile plains, uh, and and apparently the soil there is really dark and rich, and it got them the nickname the breadbasket of Europe, right? Which I had heard before. I had heard that in relation to Hitler invading, um, but be this as it may, uh, Poland and Lithuania dominated Ukraine from the 14th century until about the 18th, right? That Lithuania and Poland basically would kind of fight each other, carve up different parts of what we call Ukraine now, and Russia, and that was theirs. Uh, And if you ever get a chance to look up, um, you know, there's a great book on Polish military called The Eagle Unbowed. Um, Because what you were taught was wrong, Uh, truly. You were taught about the ineptitude of the Polish forces in World War II. um, And that was actually Nazi propaganda that made its way over here. And I don't mean that funny. It's literally true. Um, But uh, there were uh, Poles called Hussars, and it was their knights. And these guys were unbeatable. Right, they owned Europe for a long time. But Poland and Lithuania dominated that whole area. And then Imperial Russia, right, so under the czars, um, came down, beat Poland, beat Lithuania, and controlled everything we call Ukraine now, except for the Western part that the Austro-Hungarian people took control of. So, what we call Ukraine now, Austria and Hungary controlled the uh, western part. Uh, the eastern part was basically controlled by the Russian czars. Now, what, what, what are Russian czars? Well, um, the Russians took the word czar from the word Caesar or Kaiser, right? So Julius Caesar is how we say it in church Latin. Classic Latin, they would have said Julius Kaiser, which is why the germans eventually called their military leaders kaiser uh, the the russians translate it tsar t no t i don't know there's letters in it and there's a vowel tsar t-s-a-r so these tsars uh which again they took their name from caesar or kaiser uh were families that ran what we call russia so we say imperial families the last one was the romanovs that didn't end well okay so now this is the time when real troubles began between ukraine and russia in a real way namely you've got the west holding part and when we say west we mean europe When we say East, we mean Russia. And that's a cultural difference, a vast cultural difference. In fact, part of the thing I would love to learn from Dr. Aaron, although, again, bro, I gotta say a A. Aaron, is about where Slovaks fit in all this, because I confess, and I'm really embarrassed about this, I always thought Slovaks and Slavs were basically the same thing, and they are not. And I just learned this within the last year. Uh, so I'd love to learn about that but anyway um, so you have (laughs) Ukraine in a battle that she's in for the rest of her life from this moment to the end the east and the west pulling at her who is going to influence her are Ukrainians going to be western Europe like Europe or are they going to be eastern like Russia So the Ukrainians started to foster within themselves a sense of national identity, and I even saw it described as a kind of nationalism. Now, you and I hear nationalism, and we think Nazis, but that's because the American media is insane, yeah? Nationalism is a good thing, I think. The idea of, I love my country, I wanna be a part of it, Uh, and I think my country is a good place. Now, if that then translates into and that country, and these people are awful. Well, no, then that's a sin. Um, but a strong sense of national identity is a good thing. Uh, again, I- as long as it isn't that whole, well, but only white people. Okay, now you're an idiot. Uh, you get me? Is that, Are folks with me? Is this boring? You can tell me. No. Okay. Huh? The Guardian's. Okay, folks are happy, all right. So, and if you're not happy, it's Kerry's fault. If you're happy, why, that's me. So, the Ukrainians started to develop and understand themselves as a national people. It's no longer Kiev Rus, or formerly Kiev Rus, or the artist formerly known as Prince. We are Ukrainians, and the czars hated this and they attempted to suppress it. They began to describe Ukraine as, quote, little Russia. If that sounds familiar to those of you in Ann Arbor, you're the Russia in this story. (laughs) They banned the use of Ukrainian language in schools. So Ukrainian kids had to go to school in Russian. And now, I don't mean, again, I'm ignorant. I've heard Russian. I've heard Ukrainian. They sound very similar. But I would imagine if you don't know English, English and Spanish sound similar. They, they do. If you don't know English and Spanish, and you hear them, they sound similar. So I don't know. I know some words are the same. Remember we met that Ukrainian girl at the closet place, and I know pivo is the same, beer is the same in both countries. Anyway. So um, now you've got Ukraine. Uh, the Ukraine, and you have the East and West tearing Ukraine apart, fighting for it. You have the Ukrainians starting to um, come, Holy Spirit, exert themselves. Insert what is the word? Uh, insert themselves. Like no, we're Ukrainians, right? Uh, we have our language, we have our culture, and this whole thing was messy for a while until uh, the Russian and the Austro-Hungarian empires collapsed at the end of world war one right and at that point the ukrainians went we're independent they got together in kiev in 1917 and said we're ukrainia we're the ukraines we're free we are independent and they they signed we are now a country and poland went (laughs) and came on in (laughs) Poland thought that was so cute Uh, So they swept in and invaded Ukraine And what they found, the Poles did Was that they weren't just fighting Ukrainians They were fighting forces of of the Russian Tsar And the new Bolshevik government Which took over Russia in 1918 This is such This is where the story I don't know if you noticed it, It hasn't got not sad yet right the people in this area suffered so much to this point it's about to get a lot lot worse okay? and how will you have different powers tearing at ukraine's ukrainians and themselves you've got three forces goose stepping around ukraine poland the czar's armies and the bolshevik government and they're all tearing at the ukrainians to try to grab territory, and you're gonna find, always, almost always, the Western Ukrainians, they're like, "Nah, we're Russian. We're with the Russians." And the Eastern Ukrainians are like, "Y'all might be, but we aren't." Um. In the end, you get to the year 1922 and ukraine is devastated it has been perpetual war and slaughter and starvation and it's about to get worse because in 1922 the soviet union in a sense just said ukraine is ours and that was it was it Mm -hmm. ukraine now belongs to the soviet union um Ukrainian pre- peasants' response to this was, yeah, we're, we're not going to play ball. We're not going to join your collective farms. Uh, and Stalin, with his usual gentle hand, uh, in 1930s, he decided Ukraine would be better off without Ukrainians. Okay. Uh, and responded with supreme and total violence what did he do mass executions but perhaps the cruelest thing he did was a planned starvation hey namely uh, much like the English did to the Irish uh, or were doing to the Irish at different times in history grow all the food you want we're gonna take it and Ukrainians, now get this, that most conservative estimate I saw is 10 million Ukrainians died of starvation. Uh, That's 13% of their population. They were growing food, there was food there, but the Soviets, under Stalin's orders, made sure they didn't get any. Um, I read accounts of uh, Westerners seeing people who looked like walking skeletons just falling over dead and that the Russians would, or Soviets I guess I should say, would then quite literally kick them out of the way and keep going. That the idea was, if we kill all the Ukrainians, then we won't have troubles with them. And in an awful way, of course, it worked. Stalin depopulated the Ukraine. Uh, And then he took about, well, I typed millions, so I don't remember the exact number. He brought in millions of Russians and Soviets to repopulate Ukraine uh, and to help him exploit all the coal and iron, because there was a ton of that stuff there, right? Iron ore and coal uh, abound in Ukraine. I don't know if they still do. I really don't. I assume so. Uh, But this is where you're going to get a lot of the weirdness you see today, where you do hear about pro-Russian Ukrainians. And you're like, what is wrong with you people? Well, they're Russian. Stalin brought them in. Um, And and so you might be thinking, well, why would anyone want to be connected to Stalin? I read a book years ago uh, about how the Russians view Stalin. Um, And one of their names for him was Archangel, right? They called him an Archangel, the Archangel, namely what? Terrifying and beautiful. This idea that he was so savage that there was actually some kind of peace for people. Um, His grave, last I knew, was the most visited grave in Europe. Only St. John Paul II gives him a run every year. But the author of this book showed a picture where you couldn't see Stalin's grave. There were so many fresh flowers heaped on it. People every day, mostly elderly, just dropping flowers on it. You and I see in him a demon, arguably one of the worst humans who ever lived that we know of. It's not an exaggeration to say he was four times worse than Hitler. Uh, But he was our ally in World War II, so we weren't taught about these things. Um, Here's the key. Uh, When these Russians who are in Ukraine, if, if you say to them, yeah, but bro, Stalin brought you here, some of them might be tempted to go, yeah, he did right the man of steel the archangel that was his name to them many of them so that's a side note but it, it it's hopefully it gives you a little bit of insight into where you get this phenomenon of eastern ukraine is not unified in the sense of russians go home some of them are like russians come here we're russian okay how are people doing? Okay, so this divide between East and West, between these, these Soviets who moved into Ukraine, uh, all well yeah of course, everything got worse in World War II. yeah? The Nazis invaded Ukraine in 1941. And what did the Ukrainians do? Do you know this? They sided with the Germans. Right? Let's see, our choices are a guy who just killed everyone we love, by star- no, he didn't even shoot us. He starved us to death. Uh, and some German dude, right, who, what did Hitler t- say, he promised them, you'll be an independent state. When we finish this, when we take out the Soviets, you'll be an independent state. A lot of Ukrainians were like, where with you, big guy? Your choices are Hitler or Stalin. This is how bad their life sucked. But to be clear, I don't think many people had a sense yet of what Hitler, how deep the darkness went in him. But be this as it may, I find myself a bit defensive of Ukrainians. Because all I heard the first time I read it was, they sided with Hitler. And then it was like, mm-hmm, or Stalin. Which one would you pick? We like, oh, yeah. So the Nazis invaded Ukraine in 1941 and a lot of the locals welcomed the Germans as liberators from the Soviets. Tens of thousands joined the German army, hoping and believing Hitler's promise of you'll have an independent state. Uh, That's not a promise he kept. Big surprise. This is going to shock you. Hitler was a liar. Who knew? Instead, the Nazis went, thanks for joining us. We're really grateful for your help. We're going to give you a position in an army called slave labor. So they were um, made slaves by the Germans or the Nazis, however you want to put it. Uh, 2.5 million Ukrainians joined Stalin's Red Army then. As it became clear that Hitler not only would not grant them independent status, but was going to use them as slaves, 2.5 million Ukrainians joined Stalin's Red Army to fight the Nazis. And Ukraine ended up being Europe's bloodiest battlefield. I've not read anyone who said different. But I'll be honest. I thought France. Because, holy crap, we threw the kitchen sink at them right at Normandy. I thought maybe uh, Britain. Britain got pounded by Nazi uh, Luftwaffe. Uh, um, what do you call their Luft? Uh, Air Force. Uh but nothing touches what happened in Ukraine, right? This is where the the Nazis and the Soviets went toe to toe and the Ukrainians were in the middle. Um, Five and a half million Ukrainians died in the war. Uh, That was one sixth of their population. So one sixth of the remaining Ukrainian population, those that survived Stalin's purge can you can you fathom this loss? It, this is unspeakable. It is. Imagine the U.S. losing 16 percent of their population, and then getting in a war where they lose what? What did it was it? It was one sixth of our population. After that, that's what they endured. Uh, two point two five million of those killed were Jews. Uh, targeted by both the Nazis and the Soviets. So now if you're a Jew in Ukraine, well, great. Thanks, everybody. Uh, It's kind of the same thing that happened to Poland. Poland and Ukraine were places where Jews were relatively safe uh, before World War II. And that was part of the Nazi hatred of those countries. Uh, This was a place where Jews were left alone. Uh, and of course, Hitler was a jerk, you know right? So in the end, Ukraine is blown up, depopulated. Uh, it, it's unreal. So now the war is done, right? Uh, the Nazis are defeated. Uh, Ukrainians are in the Red Army. They, they've went through hell and back, yeah? So Stalin then, to thank the Ukrainians for their hard work, began deporting them. Uh, he began sending people into Ukraine grabbing Ukrainians and sending them off to the, uh, what do you call those in Siberia The the um, those camps where you, you just die uh, uh, I can't believe I'm forgetting the names, but anyway uh, and he executed thousands and thousands of Ukrainians yeah what do they call those? Uh, gulag Gulag, right so That was the life of Ukraine until 1991, okay? They were under Soviet power. They were crushed. They were... um, What is it? No, no. Okay. Oh, nice. Uh, Are you getting a sense of the... I just... Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, um, they languished... This is what I wrote. They languished under the chains of the Soviet Union from the end of World War II until the collapse of the soviet union in 1991 okay in 1991 90 percent of ukrainians voted to declare independence from russia right Uh, the soviet union was once again russia and they continued their commitment to incorporating ukraine under their power and influence and exploiting their people Uh, Things have been tense since then, with Russia attempting a lot of different means to regain control of Ukraine. But most of the efforts were half-hearted because Russia was attempting to rebuild from her disastrous flirtation with socialism, communism, and uh, dictatorship. Okay. Uh, remember, when the Soviet Union collapsed and capitalism moved in, that was a violent transla- transition. And not violent in the sense of people die. Well, people died, I'm sure, but nobody knew how to be capitalists. Nobody knew about ambition, except ambition associated with violence. Um, Tom Clancy, of all people, wrote an incredible article, I don't know how many years ago, but it was sometime around 91 to 93, and what he talked about was, he goes, the, the Soviets, the former Soviets, the, the, the people who were anywhere under 60 years old, were the first generation of humans that historians are aware of, that were raised with parents who were atheists, Okay, so it wasn't just it was three generations of atheistic communism. And he said, so what do you have? You have nothing less than the will to power. That's it. It was just what Nietzsche talked about. Right. Wait, I'm going off on a side issue. Sorry. Uh, but, But basically, you know, Nietzsche's whole thing. Uh, kind of making fun of, in a weird way, this idea of, as a a guy named uh, Dr. Campolo put it, everybody wants Christianity without Christ. But Christianity without Christ is impossible because it degrades into what? Well, you have to be nice. Well, what does it mean to be nice? It means you agree with everything I say. Well, I don't agree with everything you say. You're hateful. You have to be destroyed, Mm -hmm. right? In the name of kindness. Yeah, you get it? There is a tyranny to this idea of morality by populism uh, because it doesn't even end up being by populism it ends up being by whoever's loudest be this as it may Russia found herself in a position where she was filled with powerful men with quite frankly no conscience and and that's what Clancy was writing about all those years ago he said he was so right he said American organized crime isn't ready however ruthless they think they are that's cute You haven't met ruthlessness until you've met a second generation uh, former Soviet, who was not just raised with the idea that there is no God, there is no public morality, but they've not been raised to think of anything else. And so what matters? Well, now matters. Now matters in the sense of all there is, is this. So I better get what I can and you better not get in my way. And nobody embodies that better than Putin. A man who's willing to do whatever it takes to get and hold power. Think of how brilliant and ruthless you have to be to enter a republic and in a few short years, transform it into a form of benign, benign appearing dictatorship, much like Caesar Augustus did. How do you crash a republic? By convincing everyone, no, it's a republic when it isn't. Does this make sense? Okay. Now this might be the natural break for tomorrow, right? That tomorrow is when we put our foot on the gas pedal. We just covered from about the eighth century until 1991 in 45 minutes. Okay. It'll take me at least that long to cover 1994 until now. Uh, if you are interested, and I meant to look this up before, hold on, okay? There's a documentary on Netflix about Ukraine and about the Maiden riots, Winter on Fire. This is not for the faint of heart. Like, I, gosh, I'm going to start crying talking about it. Um. Sorry. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I didn't mean to have such reaction. Uh, there's a documentary on Netflix. I encourage you to watch it tonight or tomorrow if you wish, but this is where you find out what these, forgive me, these hard ass people who know what suffering really is. What happens the day they say enough and yet refuse to do violence. Um, winter on fire. Uh, this is about the 93 days that happened in 2014 that your news media didn't bother to tell you about because they were too busy telling you that Trump made an okay sign with his hands or something stupid, right? And I'm you know not a pro-Trump, I just mean it's all circus clown stuff. That's what the media is now. But uh, this is what these are the people fighting the Soviet uh, Russians now. And this is why an army, an eighth of the size of the Russian army, is going toe-to-toe with them. These are hard, beat-up people, just sick of it all. But they're not willing to do violence. This is what will blow you away. Don't watch it if you can't. You see people die. You see people get beaten to death. You see uh, what the Russians have been doing over there for the last, well, since 1991. So I think this is a good breaking point. I'm sorry it's such a sad one. It's just I can't. Dad and I watched this. And when it was done, it was one of those things where we didn't say anything. We just sat there and I cried. Um, man. Okay. Uh, so tomorrow, what we'll do is pick up in December of 1994 okay, I was in my second year of grad school um, and uh, where we'll pick up there in 94 so remember the Soviet Union's dissolved Ukraine is its own thing and what does Ukraine have? the world's third largest nuclear stockpile yeah? how about that? so that's where we'll pick up tomorrow and then again, we're going to start negotiating with Dr. A. Aron, Yeah. And see, maybe we can get him on Friday and do the whole question and answer on Friday with him. We just can't figure out how to do the tech. We lack the ability to have the brother on screen for me and you. Right? Uh, we just It's expensive equipment. Um, but uh, we'll figure something out. And if we can't, we'll do a standard Friday. And maybe ask him. Maybe we can record something. I don't know. I, please be sure, and I'm serious. I'm not looking for compliments. I want the truth. If this isn't where you want to go, you've got to let me know. Because I'd rather talk about Jesus. I'm not being funny. Right? I want you to know about Jesus <laughs> I don't know if you've heard I work for the guy uh, But uh, I do think this is important Because it, it, And I know I'm hard on them But in so many ways Our mainstream media has failed uh, They don't tell us these things um, You know We know about movie stars' opinions And that's so helpful To nothing But this, is, this didn't happen In a vacuum Putin didn't just wake up one day and go, screw it, let's invade Ukraine. This is a long, hard fight. And if we can't figure this out soon, and I'm not being a scaremonger, this is a world war. This is a world war in about six months if something doesn't happen. Okay. This is why you've never seen the world in this much unity, right? Germany, France, two countries so repulsed by war, and I get it, right? They have seen the belly of the beast. Uh, you know, we tease the French and Germans about doing everything to avoid war. And, and I do it as a joke, but I get it too. Praise God for them saying, uh, we've done war. Uh, Americans are always happy to have wars because they don't happen here. But the, France, Germany, Belgium, Poland, us, Britain, I mean, you could go on and on, Italy, frickin' Italy, who's sick of war like nobody else, are all putting the clamps on Russia because what they get is this can't stop uh, before it spreads. Okay. I'm, I'm preaching today. Sorry. Uh, is there anything before we go? No. <laughs> um. uh Okay. Does the name Moscow have a meaning? I don't know. I should look that up. I, I true. Tr- uh, I I think they say Muscovy in well, Russian. Yeah, they say I, river, but I, you know, it's yeah. like the river there. But uh, you know, what? Came first, okay. Right? Um, uh, okay. So. I hope you found this helpful. And for those of you who are like, dude, stay out of this. Let's talk Jesus. I totes get it. And next week, we'll be right back on track, OK? Unless Russia invades Siberia, which they already own. So uh, <laughs> as a side note, and I don't know if Dr. Ward's watching. I'm going to make a statement, Doc, and I've always held this. And I said it to a buddy yesterday, and he was like, I don't know. Ready, for this? I can't think of an offensive war the Russians have won they're great at defense ask the nazis yeah uh the nazis threw the greatest war machine in human history at the soviets who were ill-prepared ill-equipped and dying of hunger and the soviets beat them you just can't beat them on their home turf but although the japanese might have something to say about that i don't know anyway so i'm gonna stop we're gonna continue tomorrow And then on Friday, we start with a consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Our Mother. And then we'll see what we can do to get Dr. Ward in here. And until then, I'll see you beautiful people tomorrow. Salad pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, help. Huh? The suffering of the people of Ukraine, come to their rescue. Lord, drive... The evil from their midst. Lord Jesus, we ask for you to help us to be instruments of peace wherever we go to recognize that country-scale violence doesn't happen in a vacuum. We foster violence in our hearts. We call it virtuous, and then we're surprised when it all blows up. Lord, make it so our only ambition is to love you and our neighbor. Lord Jesus, please be in a special way with the people of Poland who have been insanely generous in helping these refugees, with the people of France and Germany and all the countries that are taking in these folks. Please reward them for their generosity and their goodness. Oh, Jesus, all the kids separated from mom and dad, all the hungry, all the cold, please help and use us to help in whatever way you see fit. We lay all other concerns aside today, Lord, and we give you Ukraine and Russia, and we give them to you precisely because we love you and we trust you. May Almighty God bless all of you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'll see you people tomorrow when we put our foot on the gas pedal and go 1994 to the present in Ukraine and Russia. God bless you guys. Is it over? No, it's never over.